Lord, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would uh, just send it deep into our hearts tonight, God. Open up our eyes, open up our souls to receive what you want to say to us. Please draw us close to your presence, and uh, God, impart your wisdom down to us, but at the same time, be exalted, uh, be glorified, be blessed as we're now worshiping you by the attention we give to your word. And so we just ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So tonight, we are getting one step closer to finishing up the Old Testament. We are, uh, we're going to finish it up next week, and then we'll be in the New Testament. So we are barreling through the Bible right now. Um, so we're moving through the Minor Prophets. Tonight, we're going to cover the books of Habakkuk, Zephaniah, and Haggai. And if you're thinking, oh my gosh, that's three whole books, it's, oh my gosh, that's uh, six whole chapters. Uh, eight whole chapters, sorry. Um, so, Habakkuk is where we're going to find ourselves. There is not, uh, you can pronounce it however you want, but we'll stick with Habakkuk or Habakkuk or one of those for tonight. Um, but he jumps right in, and I, just, I love this guy because it's just full of honesty. And so chapter 1, verse 1, the oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw, how long, O Lord, will I call for help and you will not hear? I cry out to you that violence, yet you don't save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore, the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. Habakkuk comes to the same uh, brick wall that every Christian comes to at some point in time, which is that uh, life does not seem fair. And... Uh, there's a, there's a song I love in this context. He says, I wondered why the good man dies, the bad man thrives, and Jesus cries because he loves them both. And, uh, and, and we, we come to that point of this is just not, this world is not going the way it ought to. And, and sooner or later, every Christian is going to hit this point of God is not meeting my expectations. God is not living up to what I have expected him to do, or what I've hoped that he would do, and uh, and that's a, that's a, that can be a, a major crisis of faith for people, and and it happens, I think, pretty much to every Christian. I think it's going to happen is you're going to hit that point where you have an expectation of God, an expectation of here's how God needs to act right now, and He won't meet your expectation, and then you're forced to then back up and say, well, wait a second, what happened? Right? I prayed for this, or I hoped for this, or I you know, gave money toward this, or I was, you know, I was, I had an expected result, and it didn't happen. What am I going to do with it? And Habakkuk comes to that same point, and we see this throughout the scripture. So if, if you're in one of those points, or if you've been in one of those points, that is not, uh, that's fine, right? Everyone's going to go through that, but it does matter what you do with it. John the Baptist went through it. Jesus said John the Baptist was the greatest person ever born of a woman, which, uh, short of Jesus Christ himself, which, i.e., equates John was the greatest human being who ever lived in a spiritual context. And John uh, had to wrestle with, Jesus Christ is not living up to my expectations because I expected him to come and deliver us and I'm sitting in prison uh, and this isn't making sense. And so it happens. And Habakkuk has this crisis. He says, God, you know, I'm saying, hey, there's violence and you're not saving us and justice is getting perverted. And... Uh, you know, I'm, I'm having to look at wickedness in the world around me. What's going on? Why is this happening? And in verse 5, God answers them. 
And he says, look among the nations, observe, be astonished, wonder, because I'm going to do something in your days you would not believe it if you were told. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans. And he goes on from there, and we won't, uh, in the interest of time, we're not going to read all of the book tonight, but the Lord says, here's what's going on. I'm going to raise up the, the Chaldeans, which is another word for the Babylonians. So Habakkuk is a prophet in Judah. We don't know a ton about him, but we know he's prophesying in Judah before the time of the Babylonian conquest. So he says, God, why is there so much wickedness in my land? And, and God, interestingly, does not answer his why question. God answers the what. God almost, I won't say never, because at that point it'd be tempting for the Lord to prove me wrong and whatever. Uh, but God almost never gives us a why. He, he just, that's just not really how he operates because he's God and we're not. And so he doesn't owe us an explanation for why he chooses to do things. But he will oftentimes, like in the case here, give a what. Or, or a, you know, he'll, he'll explain things, but oftentimes it's not really what we want. So Habakkuk says, God, why is there all this destruction and, and, and why is there all this wickedness in my country? We're supposed to be the children of God. And God says, I'll tell you what. I'm going to raise up the Babylonians as a means of dealing with the wickedness in your country. And, and so Habakkuk is waiting for God to tell him something about revival or something else. And God says, basically, you're right. There is a lot of wickedness. And you know what? I'm going to deal with it. I'm going to judge the wickedness of this land. And it's going to be conquered. This land is going to be conquered by the Babylonians. And so Habakkuk has a little bit of a hard time with that. In verse 12 of chapter 1, he says, Aren't you from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? Uh, you know, but he's God, aren't you big enough to come up with like a better solution here? Uh, we won't die. You, O Lord, have appointed them to judge, and you, O Rock, have established them to correct. Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. And, and he goes on, but basically saying, God, the Babylonians are a wicked people. You can't use the wicked people to accomplish your plans, right? We're, we're the children of Israel, God. You you kind of owe us something, right? I mean, you know, the, the Babylonians deserve judgment, but we deserve revival. The Babylonians deserve all of your, you know, I mean, for crying out loud, they're wicked, but we're like wicked, you know, Jewish people, and that, and that ought to count for something, right? And, and he has this, he's kind of, he's doubting the response of God, and oftentimes, uh, this is a, it's a great illustration for us that what's happening is Habakkuk sort of sees a problem. <laughs> And the Lord doesn't answer, and so he's asking the Lord about it. The Lord doesn't answer it, but he starts, what he starts doing is starts just sort of changing the focus. Starts reorienting. And it's kind of like that, you know, warmer, colder game, right? God tells him something, and he's like, well, what about this? And God's like, hey, you're getting a little colder, a little colder. Oh, oh, hey, hey, you're getting warmer. You're getting warmer. You're getting closer, right? Um, so Habakkuk is he's trying to reconcile what God just told him with what his expectations of God are. And... So he goes that, and then in chapter 2, one of the greatest uh, exhortations for us if we're in a situation like this in life. He says, chapter 2, verse 1, I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart, and I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I am approved. Habakkuk says, I am going to stay put. I'm going to station myself. I'm going to keep watch to see what he's going to speak to me and how I need to reply when I'm reproved. He says, I'm going to focus on listening for the voice of the Lord. I'm going to be ready for the Lord to speak to me, and I am going to get ready for the Lord to correct me. Habakkuk has a relationship with the Lord where he is willing to accept 
that God may not meet his expectations. And when that happens, whose expectations need to change? Habakkuk's, right? Habakkuk does not come to this point of, God, you know what? You really need to get in line with my program. He is at a point of, God has told me something that I don't understand. So I am going to pray until I get an answer that I can comprehend. And that answer may involve me being reproved or rebuked by the Lord. An answer from the Lord may involve the Lord telling me, you are wrong or uh, you are stupid, right? And, and you may have to reorient your whole perspective of the Lord around who the Lord reveals himself to be and not who you wish the Lord would be. And so Habakkuk is doing that. And, and then the Lord answers him, right? That's that point. Habakkuk is at that, that point of humility of, I don't understand. I don't understand point A, which is why is there wickedness in my nation? I don't understand point B, which is why on earth would you use the Babylonians to deal with the wickedness in my nation? But C, I'm, I'm ready to learn. And so verse 2, the Lord answers them. Record the vision and inscribe it on tablets. And, and the Lord goes on and basically says, uh, well, we'll keep going. That the one, in, record the vision and inscribe it on tablets that the one who reads it may run. For the vision is yet for the appointed time and hastens toward the goal and it will not fail. This is, this is coming and it's going to come and it's not going to, you know, don't assume that a delay means an inability to finish. Though it tarries, wait for it, for it will certainly come. It will not delay. So God says, all right, you need to know that it is coming. The judgment is coming. And whenever we come to that point where we don't understand why the Lord is doing what he's doing, one of the things we always come back to is, you know what, judgment is coming in the Lord's way. And that doesn't necessarily make it easier for us to feel like things are fair, but that anchors us to a truth that is God is still in control. And even in the moments when it may not feel that he is, or we may not feel that he is, that doesn't mean that he has lost control. It means we've lost proper perspective. And so God says here, it's coming. All right, I laid out my word. I just gave you a prophecy and I'm going to keep it. Verse four, behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. Now, verse four is an interesting one. Uh, so the New American Standard, which is what I'm reading out of tonight, says the righteous shall live by faith. A lot of versions translate it, the just shall live by faith. And this verse, um, it's important in the context, right? The Lord says, hey, it's coming. And in the context of judgment coming, here's what you need to know. The proud one, his soul is not right. But the righteous or the just are going to live by faith. Now, this verse becomes like one of the central verses of the book of Galatians. It becomes one of the central verses of the book of Romans. And so in a lot of ways, it becomes a huge part of the New Testament. Because in essence, the entire gospel is focused around the concept of we're made righteous by faith in Jesus Christ. We're made righteous by believing that Jesus did everything that's needed for us to receive righteousness. The whole point of Galatians is that we don't say, oh, you know, Jesus died on the cross for our sins and that's a great start. We say, no, Jesus died on the cross for our sins and that completes it. Because why? The just shall live by faith, by believing that God is God enough to justify us, that he is God enough to actually raise Jesus Christ from the dead and then raise us from the dead and fill us with the Holy Spirit and sustain his word and sustain us. So God says judgment's coming, and in a sense, judgment's coming and the gospel's coming. But notice the first part of verse 4. He says, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him. Now, I heard a pastor this week, and I'm just going to shamelessly steal it. He looked at this verse and he said, okay, let's 
play opposite for a second. What's the opposite of up? Down. The opposite of left is right. The opposite of in is out. What's the opposite of faith? Pride. The proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. Right? The man with faith has a righteous soul. The man of pride has an unrighteous soul. The opposite of faith, we see, the, the challenge is we equate faith with confidence. And that's not what faith is. Sometimes uh, faith comes with sort of a, a, you know, a pep of confidence, and that's a wonderful thing. But that's not what faith is. Faith is obedience. Faith is the humility to say, I don't have to completely understand every detail, but I'm willing to be, it's, I'm willing to walk in the humility to say that I believe God knows every detail. Right? Pride is, you know, faith is, you know what, I don't, I may not get it all, but I believe you're in control. Pride is, I don't get it all, therefore you are not in control. Right? Pride is, I get it better than you get it. Faith is, I don't get it, and I believe you do get it. And so the opposite of faith is pride, which means for all of us, okay, where are we at? Are you walking in pride? Are you walking in faith? Are you willing to accept that there are going to be certain things in Christianity that you're not going to understand? That doesn't mean it's a blind faith. Christianity is a reasonable faith. It's a very reasonable faith. Christianity is the most logical, historically verifiable faith ever in existence. Right? It's a reasonable faith. God has given us enough absolute concrete facts that it's incredibly reasonable. But he's left us enough mysteries and questions that it's still a faith. And, and that's very important that we understand that. But Habakkuk comes here and, he, and basically the Lord, he says, I'm going to wait and watch the Lord correct my vision. And the Lord says, great, I would love to correct your vision. Here's what you need to know. I'm still just. I'm still judge. And I will justify you by faith as long as you're not proud. And so... When we come to these, you know, these crossroads of God is not living up to my expectations, the lesson of Habakkuk is a, just a great summary. And so the Lord goes on. He, he delivers uh, some more descriptions of the judgment and some of what's coming on. But at the end of chapter 3, the end of the book, Habakkuk's talking. And at this point, he's had his vision corrected. All right? he's, he's had the Lord speak to him and, and not explain why, but he's had the Lord speak to him and say, no, here's... Here's what you need to remember. And so chapter 3, verse 17, he says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines, and though the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls. Now, that's a lot going on in that verse. Right? You can read that, and that's whatever it is. Six lines. Um, six lines that encapsulates a whole nation starving to death. Though all that happens, verse 18... Yet, I will exalt in the Lord. I'll rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and he has made my feet like hind's feet. Hind is another word for like deer or mountain goat type of animal. And he makes me walk on high places. So Habakkuk gets his vision corrected, and he says, you know what? It really doesn't matter what happens. Now that my vision's been corrected, now that I understand that the Lord is still judge, and the Lord is still just, and that I can live by faith, whatever happens, I'll exalt in the Lord. I'll rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. And so we all come to crossroads, and that's fine. But what you do with them is what's going to define your ability to move forward in your Christian walk with the Lord. Right? And so in that sense, Habakkuk is just, it's just a great, it's just a great encouragement for us that 
a lot of people have wrestled with this, but that the Lord, the Lord's promises to Habakkuk are still the Lord's promises to us. Because this verse, you know, chapter 2, verse 4, carries over into the New Testament. The just shall live by faith. So that's Habakkuk. Uh, the book of Zephaniah, it carries really a very similar theme to a lot of the minor prophets, which is coming judgment on the nation of Judah. Zephaniah, uh, chapter 1, verse 1, says, The word of the Lord which came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. So he's prophesying during the time of Josiah the king. Josiah the king is the great-grandson of Hezekiah, the king of Judah. And Zephaniah is the great-grandson of Hezekiah, the king of Judah. So they have different, they're third cousins, all right? Um, so he's prophesying at a time when Israel's Judah, sorry, is experiencing their last good king. And under Josiah, the nation experienced all these great reforms, uh, but it didn't translate into a revival. It translated into modified behavior. And so as soon as Josiah died, the people all went right back into wickedness. And so Zephaniah is standing up during the time of Josiah's reign, and he's describing, he's explaining the judgment. And, um, and sort of where he's, where he's going, he's going to describe in chapter 1 is like judgment on the nation of Judah specifically. Chapter 2 is judgment on the nations generally because he's describing the Babylonian army coming just like Habakkuk. And the Babylonians conquered, at that point, most of the known world. So he says, you know, the Babylonians are coming, they're going to conquer Judah. Babylonians are coming, and they're pretty much going to conquer all your neighbors too. But chapter 3, um, just like so many of these books, he goes back to restoration. And chapter 3 is um, just the Lord saying, hey, you know what, I'm going to deal with you, but that does not mean I'm going to reject you. And so therefore, verse 8, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up as a witness, in my, indeed, my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out on them my indignation, all my burning anger, for all the earth will be devoured by the fire of my zeal. For then I will give to the people's purified lips that all of them may call on the name of the Lord to serve him shoulder to shoulder. That's a prophecy that has not happened yet. But it'll be exciting when it does. The Lord's going to rise up. He's going to assemble all the nations of the earth and he'll pour out his wrath. But they're all going to call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. So what is this? This is, you know, this is toward the end of, of time. Um, this is probably, you know, right at the, at the snap point between the Great Tribulation and the Millennial Kingdom. This is when the Lord comes down, touches down on the Mount of Olives, splits the mountain in half. Uh, he's going to, we'll cover it next week, he's going to wipe out a massive army that's in the Valley of Megiddo in Israel. And then he's going to bind Satan, throw him into hell for a thousand years and reign on earth as the earth's king. And at that point, basically, you know, before we experience the new heavens and the new earth, we're going to get a chance to actually sort of see more or less how God created the world to function. Like, hey, you know, sort of the, whatever, the tag scene or the end, you know, after credits scene, like before we actually officially turn off the movie here, let's just show you what should have actually been going on all along. And we'll get a whole millennium of that. And so during that time, the people's all the peoples are going to serve the Lord shoulder to shoulder, right? Every people, every language, all the different colors, all the different, you know, 
economic backgrounds, all the different educational backgrounds. We're just going to be serving the Lord, shoulder to shoulder, right? We're all just going to be doing the work of the Lord together because the Lord is interested in restoration. In verse 12, he says, I'll leave among you a humble and lowly people and they will take refuge in the name of the Lord. So he's, he's jumping back and forth and we've talked about this with the prophets. He's going back and forth between, you know, very, uh, very near prophecies and very distant prophecies. Um, but really, in the eyes of God, who's outside time, it's all just a drop in the bucket as far as when they happen. Um, so he's, he says, you know, here, he's describing when the Babylonians come, I'm going to leave you some humble people and some lowly people and they'll take refuge in the name of the Lord. Why? Because the just shall live by faith, right? Because the proud man's soul is not right. And the Lord says, I'll leave some humble people and they'll take refuge in my name. And then in verse 14, uh, he says, Shout for joy, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O Israel. Rejoice and exalt with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away his judgments against you. He's cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst you will fear disaster no more. So he says, hey, rejoice. I'm going to establish you. I'm going to restore you. I'm going to make you whole. I'm going to do things that you're not currently capable of fathoming, right? And, but it's in this context, bear in mind, Zephaniah is in the context, right? He, what, what's he, where is he at? He's in a nation that's reforming, but they're not experiencing revival. And so there would be this temptation culturally to say, hey, you know what? God owes us some more years of liberty because we've had all these reforms and we've got, you know, our moral majority and all this other good, good stuff going on, right? We've got, we're destroying idols and we're having Passover and, and the Lord says, you know what? There's still judgment for sins and you're still walking in sin and so there's still judgment coming but you know what? There's restoration coming, okay? There's restoration coming. So that's sort of the message of Zephaniah and that brings us to Haggai. Uh... I love the fact that that clock is four minutes fast. I said it on, that way on purpose, but it's super encouraging because I've got extra time for Haggai. Haggai is, uh, I think it's probably my favorite of the minor prophets. And if you remember last week, we said that the book of Jonah should have been really short because the Lord should have told Jonah what to say. Jonah went and said it and the people repented and that should be the end of the book. And instead we have a couple extra chapters of Jonah disobeying, whatever. Well, Haggai is the second shortest book in the Old Testament. It's five whole sermons packed into two chapters. And you know what happens? He gives a sermon, and the people do what he said. He gives a sermon, and the people do what he said. He gives a sermon, and the people do what he said. It's one of the only chunks of the scripture where a prophet comes to the people and says, here's what the Lord wants you to do, and they say, let's go. And so it's, it's just a fun book to read. It's, like a, it's, a, it's just a super refreshing book. Um, but... Context is everything, or it's, it's not everything, but it's an awful lot of things, isn't it? Uh, so Haggai, if you need some context, gee, I'm glad you asked. Flip over to the book of Ezra, chapter 4. And in Ezra chapter 4, it's page 381 in my Bible, if that helps anybody. Um, the people go back after they've been captured by Babylon and uh, then Babylon was captured by Persia and Cyrus, king of Persia, lets the Israelites go back to Jerusalem and they're going to rebuild the temple. And so they start for a while and then some of the local neighbors start to make a stink and they send a letter to, at this point, the new king and say, hey, uh, I really don't think you ought to be letting these people build the temple. And he sends back and says, you're right, actually, they're troublemakers, they build the temple, we're just going to have one hassle after another. So 
He sends in this whole letter, and then chapter 4, verse 24, well, chapter 4, verse 23, Then as soon as the copy of King Artaxerxes' document was read before Rehum and Shimshai and all their colleagues, they went in haste to Jerusalem to the Jews and stopped them by force of arms. Then the work of God, work on the house of God in Jerusalem ceased, and it was stopped until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So this king sends back and says, you know what, these people aren't allowed to build their temple. And the people are basically forced to stop. And for about 15 years, uh, historically, they don't do any work on the temple of the Lord. They've been sent back to Jerusalem, specifically by King Cyrus, to rebuild the temple, and and done anything. They stopped for 15 years, and they kind of, you know, they kind of had to. But as time went on, it went to that, it sort of made that little shift, right, from well, we can't because we're not allowed to, to, well, we can't because we're kind of preoccupied. And so Haggai shows up, and if, you, if you're still in Ezra, if you're not, don't sweat it, but in chapter 5, verse 1, when the prophets Haggai, Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them, then Zerubbabel the son of Shaltiel and Jeshua the son of Josadak rose and began to rebuild the house of God, which is in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. So Ezra chapter 5, you've got to put it in context. Ezra chapter 5 says, well, chapter 4 says, so the people stopped. Fifteen years later, we get chapter 5, which says, Then Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the prophet rose up and prophesied. And the people started building the house of God again. So what do they say? Well, I'm glad you asked. It's right here. It's written down for us. And we'll get through Haggai tonight. Next week, we'll get through Zechariah. But Haggai chapter 1, verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai, to Zerubbabel, came by the prophet Haggai, to Zerubbabel the son of Sheltiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. So it's coming through the prophet to the governor and the high priest, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, This people says the time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. <coughs> And then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You've sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there's not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there's not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one's warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. So God speaks to uh, Zerubbabel and to Joshua, or Joshua, and he says, you guys are all saying, you know, it's not time to build the house of the Lord. But you're living in paneled houses. Now, contextually, it's sort of, this isn't like they're living in shacks. He's saying, you guys have had plenty of time to make your houses all a little bit ritzy. You all have granite countertops now. You all have stainless steel sinks. And you keep telling me that you can't be bothered. That it's just, you know, it's just not time yet to build the house of God. And he says, are you kidding me? Right? He says, you're wondering why you just... You're sowing much, but you're harvesting little. You're, you're eating, but you're not enough to be satisfied. He's saying, you guys are having all these problems. You're having all these physical problems, but really they're spiritual problems. They're, pro they're physical problems that are manifesting because of a spiritual crisis in your heart. Now, whenever this comes up in the scriptures, you've got to back up just a little bit and say, you can't make a doctrine or a doctrinal statement that says if there's something physically wrong in your life, then there's something spiritually wrong too. You can't do that. The scriptures are very clear. You can't do that. But what you can say very conclusively is sometimes if there's a physical problem in your life, 
there's a possibility that it's connected to a spiritual problem. And it might be that the Lord is getting your attention regarding a spiritual problem by allowing a physical problem to, to take place. So if you're wrestling with something physically or, you know, struggling through something, it's always a good idea to ask the Lord, Lord, is there something that you're trying to open my eyes to through this? Is there some sort of sin or compromise that I need to deal with as, you know, part of dealing with this? And if there is, the Lord will very quickly show you. You won't have, it won't, it's, the Lord is not going to say no and then a week later tell you psych, right? The Lord is going to tell you if there's sin in your life because the Lord wants you to be holy. And so ask the Lord that by all means and then if not, understand that it's for another purpose, okay? But in this context here, the people are, uh, they're just kind of spinning their wheels and nothing's happening, right? They're, they're making money, they're working hard, they're planting all kinds of seed and it's just like, it feels like their money's just slipping through their fingers, right? There's just not, there's never quite enough food. We don't not, we just, it's just not working, right? We're, they're chasing the Israeli dream or the American dream as hard and fast as they can and it's just not happening. And the Lord says, it's not happening because you are completely misplaced in your priorities. So verse 7, the Lord says, consider your ways. Think about this, guys. You know, open up your mind. Go up to the mountains, bring wood, and rebuild the temple. Uh, and that I may be glorified and be pleased with it, says the Lord. You look for much, but it comes to little, and when you bring it home, it blows away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts? Because of my house, which lies desolate, while each of you runs to his own house. And so he says, you know, basically, here's what's going on. You want to know what's going on. Here's what's going on. You're not doing the work of the Lord. You need to go do the work of the Lord. The Lord has called you to rebuild his house, and you guys are instead all focused on your own, you know, cute little lives that you want to make look nice and comfortable. And the Lord is saying, wake up. Wake up to the reality and live the way that you were created and designed to live. And verse 12, I think it's one of the just greatest verses in the Bible. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people showed reverence for the Lord. Haggai really... Uh, is like an alarm clock in a sense. It's a little bit of, you know, an alarm clock is not, it's not symphony music, right? It's not supposed to be. It's designed to be a little bit obnoxious so that you wake up. It's designed to provoke you so that you wake up, right? Well, in a sense, Haggai's got the same message. He's, so he's got all kinds of exclamation marks in here and because the Lord's saying, guys, you need to wake up. You need to do the work of the Lord. And so as we read through Haggai, um, there is something in here to convict everybody. I don't care who you are. Uh, because the Lord is always trying to encourage us to draw closer, to be about our Father's business, to not get distracted by the things of the world. And verse 12, Zerubbabel and Joshua and all the people say, you know what? You're right. We do need to wake up. Let's do this. And so they hear the word of the Lord and they do the word of the Lord. And verse 13, uh, it's, just, it's a great couple verses here that I think I want us to pay attention to. It says, Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke by the commission of the Lord to the people, saying, I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, the governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord their God on the 24th day of the sixth month. So what happens? Haggai spoke, the Lord 
stirred the hearts of Zerubbabel, of Joshua, and of the people. And then what happened? The people worked. That's how, that's how life and ministry and church services ought to go. The word of God gets spoken. The Lord stirs the hearts of people. And then people go out and do the work of the ministry. Right? Because who's in full-time ministry? All of us. Right? So, so that's why, honestly, that's a big part of why our church teaches through the word. Because we don't, want it to, we don't want it to say, you know, Haggai spoke the words of Haggai. We want to hear what the Lord has to say. I don't care how smart Haggai is. I want to hear what the Lord has to say. And, uh, you know, here, it, we want the Lord to stir the hearts of his people so that his people can do his work, right? I don't ever want people to do Nate's work. That equates to Nate being lazy, right? I don't need anybody to do my work. I have work that I need to do and I need to do it. And if I sit up here and try and convict you into doing my work, then that's just, that's horribly ineffective and that's selling both of us short. But if I stand up here, sit up here, or dad's up here or whoever else, and we speak the word of the Lord and the Lord stirs up your heart through his word, and then you receive that call to go do the work of the Lord, that's how the kingdom of God is spread. That's how we do the work of the Lord faithfully, right? We hear the word of God, it stirs us up, and we work accordingly. We act it out. So it's just, it's the people responding to the call of God. And whenever it happens, it's exciting. Haggai's entire, the entire book takes place over about two months. He basically gives a little message, they do it. He gives a little message, they do it. About two months, gets through all five of his messages, and the Lord says, that's great, thanks. And, and so it wraps up. And chapter two, uh, there's, there's the other... I think three uh, sermons, and most of they are the two Zerubbabel, because Zerubbabel needs some specific encouragement because of things he was coming up against. Um, but we'll just, as we're wrapping up here, um, Haggai gets another word, and he's giving it to Zerubbabel and Joshua and the people. And in chapter 2, verse 3, he says, Who's left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? So they're rebuilding a temple. They're rebuilding what had been Solomon's temple, one of the most incredible buildings ever built. And the Lord says, hey, there's you know, a couple of you guys here who are just, were just young enough when you were taken away that you can remember what it looks like. And truth be told, in your mind right now, what we have looks awful, right? It's, a, it's, a, you know, it's getting built by volunteers, whereas Solomon's was built by the best craftsmen in the world. And he's not saying that to be discouraging. He's saying, verse 4, but now take courage... Zerubbabel declares the Lord. Take courage also Joshua, the high priest, and all you people of the land, take courage and work for I am with you. So the Lord says, hey, you guys are looking at what you've got here and the temptation is to say, it is nothing like it used to be. Temptation is to say, you know, it's not like it was in the 90s. And the Lord says, who cares? Take courage and work because I am with you. And uh, verse five, as for the promise which I made when which I made you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. He says, hey, remember a couple things. My promises that I made when, when you came out of Egypt, those are still true. I've been keeping my promises to you for hundreds of years now, right? So it's still true. So take courage. He says, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Take courage. Do not fear. Take courage. Now, we'll get into the the concept of the Spirit being with us, but more next week, because uh, Zechariah unpacks it a little more. But bear in mind this. The Lord's message to them is, hey, you take courage and do the work of the Lord because my Spirit is abiding in your midst. As New Testament believers, 
we don't have just that. In the New Testament, when it describes the, the relationship of the Holy Spirit with us, there's three different words that basically translate in, with, and upon. And uh, with is like, you know, the Holy Spirit's with somebody. That'd be kind of like, you know, when you're not a Christian or whatever. It's like, you, you know, you get that conscience or the nudge or you have that, you know, somewhat close shave with death. You can't quite, you know, just seemed a little weird. That's the Holy Spirit being with you, drawing you to himself. The Holy Spirit being in you is when you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. And the, the power of the Holy Spirit cleanses you by the blood of Jesus Christ from all your sins. But the Holy Spirit coming upon you is a whole other thing. It's when the power of God gets poured out in your life. That's when you experience not just like, oh, I'm saved, but I'm saved and I'm empowered, right? It's not just like, oh, I'm saved. It's no, the engine's on and it's a full tank and somebody else paid for the gas, right? It's, it's we're ready to hit the road because the Lord is driving this ship, okay? And so the Lord's promise to these people is my spirit's abiding. It's in your midst. Well, as New Testament believers, it's not in our midst, although, it is, although he is. The Holy Spirit is in our hearts, right? So the message from Haggai to the people is take courage and do the work of the Lord because the Spirit of God is in your midst and the Lord has been faithful for hundreds of years. Well, taking that same concept... As New Testament believers, we can say, hey, take courage and do the work of the Lord. Why? Because the Spirit of God is in your hearts and because the Lord has now been faithful to keep His promises for thousands of years. Right? And so we can not fear. We can do the work of the Lord. So what is the Lord calling us to? Well, that's an individual thing. I mean, sometimes, you know, you can call a church to move in a specific direction. But what's the Lord calling you to? Right? What's, and, and I have to ask myself the same question. What's the Lord calling me to? And then I have to say, well, okay, shoot, guess I better obey, right? And, and, and Haggai is just this incredible journey of watching people respond to the call of God in their lives and watching things happen as a result. And we are given that same really open-ended invitation from the Lord to watch the power of God move in and through our lives. To watch the Spirit of God transform not just us, but the lives of people around us, right? But the, the Lord is calling us. And, you know, sometimes people, need, uh, sometimes people need to be reminded to wake up because they're falling asleep and they're totally, you know, going off the edge. Sometimes a race car driver just needs to be told, you know, keep it going. You're in third position. You know, keep your foot on the gas, right? So I'm not, I'm not reading Haggai saying, uh, I'm not making any accusations, right? But I'm just saying, hey, you need to go to the Lord. And ask the Lord, hey, okay, where do I need to wake up? Where do I need to step out and do the work of the Lord? What do I need to, to stop doing or start doing, right? How do I need to lay aside weights and lay aside sins? And how do I need to keep my eyes on Jesus, who's the author and the finisher of my faith? And, and uh, you know, so it's going to happen by the power of God. But we have a responsibility to be willing to walk in that obedience, and along the way, God may ask you to do something that doesn't jive with your perspective of him. And guess what? Your perspective needs to change, right? Because the Lord is inviting us to something incredible. And we get to be part of the invitation. So, that's Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai. Next week, we are going to wrap up the Old Testament. So if you thought Haggai was fun, Zechariah is funner. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for just the power in it. We thank you for the faithfulness of the God that we get to serve. We pray that you would help us all to, uh, to search our hearts and to, to listen to the prompting of your Holy Spirit. 
as we're trying to grow and draw closer to you, I pray that you would speak to each one of us. Wake us up, God, if we're asleep. Pull us closer into your presence. Let us be effective ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ, God. We're in the midst of a, a, a crazy world that's losing its mind. And, and we, have, we have the antidote. We have the message. We have the hope and the shining light of Christ in our lives. God, don't let us hide that. Help us to, to let it out, to let our light shine before men that they may see our good deeds and glorify our Father in heaven. And we pray that you would do all these things in our hearts, God, for your glory and your kingdom and through your power and your righteousness. And it is in the name of Jesus Christ, our King, that we pray. Amen.